Our God and our Father, we ask just now for your help. Lord, we have read some words from Scripture which are probably very familiar to many of us, and we've also read words from Scripture which are probably quite unfamiliar. Lord, we just pray that you would be pleased to use them tonight to speak to us and to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder what you look forward to most in life. Maybe for you it's the simple things like the weekend and you're already a bit depressed that it's Sunday night and you have to go back to work tomorrow and you're already looking forward to next weekend. Maybe you have a holiday booked. Maybe some of you were were straight online when the US announced that they'd open up the, the borders from the 8th of November. I know a few people who were straight on there, not myself sadly. Maybe you look forward to to Christmas or some particular event. Or maybe for you it's something even bigger at the moment. Maybe you're at a a stage in your life when you're looking forward to your wedding or to, to graduation and employment if you're studying. Maybe you're thinking about starting a family. Maybe you're looking forward to retirement and getting out of it all. I wonder how it would change your life if you could see the future. Now, I know that maybe sounds like something out of a sci-fi movie or something, but if you had the option of seeing the future, would you want to do it? You might see things that you don't want to see. I have to say, though, that I would have to find the prospect of seeing the future very, very tempting. I'd find it hard to turn down. If you could, what would you look at? Would you look at next Saturday's lottery numbers so that you can come back and win big? I'm sure nobody in Ravenhill would do something as ethically questionable as that. But there are ways that you could look at the future and use it to your advantage. Perhaps you'd want to look forward to next week's news. You know, we've had a fuel crisis. We've had food shortages. Maybe you'd want to see what's coming around the corner so you could stock up before everybody else starts running out to do it. I suppose the point I want to make is that whenever we think about the future, whether we can actually see it or not, whether we're just looking forward to it. Hopefully, it it affects how we live in the here and now. If it's your dream to be a teacher, you're probably studying to do that right now. It affects what you do with your life right now. It means you've applied to study and you work hard at that to achieve your dream. If you're looking forward to, to marriage, then you're investing time in the relationship you have with the person who you're hoping will be your spouse. If you're looking forward to retirement, you maybe start to get things in order at work. You know, you maybe try to pay off the mortgage at home, things like that. Even if it's something as simple as going off on holiday, as you look forward to that, you prepare, you get your vaccine passport or whatever you have to do. What we think about the future affects how we live in the here and now, or at least it should do. And this week in our journey through the Bible, we step into the world of people who were able to say what would happen in the future. We step into the world of the prophets. And what they had to say should have affected God's people all those years ago. Uh, Whether it did affect them or not is another issue altogether, but we'll come to that. And it should also affect us tonight, too, as we think about what they had to say, what things have happened already, and what things have still to come to pass. And tonight we're, as I mentioned, in uh, the prophet Amos. Um, He is pretty typical of many of the prophets that we see in the scriptures. He lived in the 8th century before Christ, so for uh, context, that's about 40 years after the prophet Elisha, who was the successor of Elijah, and just before the prophet 
Isaiah. So after Elisha and before Isaiah, although slightly closer to Isaiah. So that places Amos about 200 years after King David, where we were last week. So Israel has split up, um, as I mentioned, into that northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. But actually, at the particular time Amos is speaking, things, politically speaking, are pretty secure for both kingdoms. Now, that won't last long. Exile is on the way. But at the time that Amos wrote these things and said these things, everything was secure. Now, the fact that the exile is coming soon probably tells us what we need to know about the, the spiritual condition of the people. It's pretty poor. Political security has increased Israel's prosperity, and with prosperity comes increased moral corruption. God's past punishments for unfaithfulness seem to have been forgotten, and here we see his patience is at the end. It's the, it's the ripe basket of fruit. The time is ripe. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me, a basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos? He asked. A basket of ripe fruit, I answered. Then the Lord said to me, the time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. So the time has come. God is going to act. That is the context into which Amos is speaking. And what I want us to do tonight is to, is to look at Amos and see how he represents really all of the prophets and how he shows us what the job of a prophet is and then how this fits into the bigger picture of the Bible and points us both to, to Jesus and then to the glorious future that Christ has won for us. So the first job that we see Amos carry out as a prophet is to point out the people's sin. God's judgment isn't going to be announced without any justification whatsoever. He's not just going to say, look, I'm, I'm going to destroy you and not tell you why. And for the Israelites at this time, there are two main areas where they are sinning. The first is that they seem to only be paying lip service to God's laws. Here's verse five. You say, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat, skimping the measure, boosting the price, and cheating with dishonest scales. The people might be obeying God's law by observing the new moon festival and resting on the Sabbath, but their hearts are on other things. They're doing the bare minimum in, in terms of obedience, but it makes no difference to them beyond the Sabbath day and the festival days. These are meant to be days of, of rest from work and rededication to the Lord and committing themselves to his ways, but all the people actually think about on those days are getting back to work. And not only that, how they can make money through dishonest methods, skimping the measure, boosting the price, cheating with dishonest scales. The people actually might as well not bother keeping the Sabbath because all they're using it for is to plan their dishonest work for the days ahead. This is very typical of the prophets. I've been reading through Jeremiah recently. In Jeremiah 7, the people are, are worshiping in the temple, and they, what Jeremiah says to them is, that, you know, you say to yourselves, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They think because they're worshiping in the temple, basically because they're in the temple, God will look after them. God will prosper them. God will bless them. But they're not worshiping him at all with their lives and Jeremiah's indictment is pretty damning and possibly even slightly more depressing than what we read this evening. Then there's a, there's a second way that Amos says the people are sinning. It's identified here. Wealthy people in Israel 
are mistreating those who are less well off. Look with me at, at verses four and six. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land. You buy the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. Wealthy people in Israel are sinning by happily treading on the poor to get themselves to the top of the pile, seeing poor people simply as items to be bought and sold. And the Lord makes it clear that he has seen all of this and he's not happy about it. Verse seven, immediately following those words, God says, the Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, I will never forget anything they have done. Now it's worth us stopping here for a moment and thinking about the implications this has for us. Because when we read the prophets, sometimes it's hard going. As we read of judgment and woes and all that we find there, we wonder what it might mean for all of, the, all of us. And Amos is maybe one of the more straightforward ones because he uses a lot less picture language than some of the others do. But when God calls out the sin of his people, it has serious implications for us. God has said that the people are only paying lip service to his laws and that they are mistreating the poor. And these are actions that are going to bring his judgment. How might those attitudes be shown in our lives and in the church today? Well, in terms of paying lip service to God, I realize that it sounds extreme, but it's something that is so, so easy for us to slip into in our lives. Come to church on a Sunday, say and do the right things, sing the right songs, serve even in whatever way we serve. But then we go out into our Monday to Saturday and we forget about God. Maybe we're, we're dishonest like the people. We cut corners. We undermine what is right in order to, to make a profit at work. We partake in, in friendships and other relationships that we know don't please God. We enter into gossip and different activities that we know we shouldn't. We get Sunday by Sunday the, the life God is calling us to, but when we're not around church, we slide away from him. Now, I'm painting that in very black and white terms. I realize it, it often doesn't happen in as dramatic a way as that. It might just be being a bit distant from God from time to time, not taking time to pray and to read the word. And of course, none of us are going to live a life from Monday to Saturday that is completely sinless. But the more we allow it to go on unchecked, the, the danger we find ourselves in of, of it becoming like that. Sunday worshippers, but Monday to Saturday non-worshippers. Put your own time frames on there. And then during times that we would normally have set aside to God, we, we find ourselves unable to think about anything else than, than our work or whatever it is that happens during the week. I think maybe many of us need to pay heed to, to the warning of that prophecy. And of course, the other way that it plays out is in treatment of the poor. Now, I guess that not many of us here tonight are in the business of buying and selling people, and that is very good. But as much as I might be able to kind of say that lightheartedly, I think there is a serious issue underneath it. On one hand, how much of our time and money is given towards helping the poor? That's a challenging thought. But maybe more subtly, how much do we think about exploitation of the poor when it comes to things we buy and the things we consume? Now, I, I realize that this area is a bit of a minefield. You know, how can we know exactly how our clothes are sourced, for example? How can we know exactly whether the things we buy or you know, have exploitation of the poor involved in their manufacture. It's very difficult. Even companies that claim their, their products are ethically sourced 
How can we know that's true? Every now and then, you, you seem to hear of some big media sting operation where some big company has had its um, practices exposed and, and you find pictures of these people working in terrible conditions. You, you quite frequently see stories like that circulated on social media in particular um, about conditions that clothes are manufactured in or, or that animals are kept in by different companies. And it's, it's genuinely difficult to know which ones of those are genuine and which ones are complete rubbish and fake. It's a minefield. It's really difficult, but I think we have a responsibility as Christians, as far as we can, not to support those who exploit the poor. It might cost us more money. It won't always be easy to know, but, but I think we as a people should be leading the way in terms of buying products that, as far as we can tell, have been sourced ethically. It's not just things that we buy either. Um, there are certain industries which um, exploit people. Now, some of those are, are really obvious, like, like the drugs industry or the sex trade and prostitution, and you know, those are known to exploit people and traffic people. But again, I, I would think maybe that most people here tonight won't be involved with those areas. But again, there are more subtle areas where this is true. If you watch pornography, for example, besides the obvious sin issue with that, with lust, it's quite likely, actually, that you're supporting sex trafficking. Uh, Dr. Catherine McKinnon, who is a scholar at the University of Michigan, I was reading a report um, that she uh, had written this week, and in an article, she says that much of the pornography industry remains organized crime, making it unlikely that all earnings are reported anywhere. She goes on to outline how the industry views, and I quote, real women and children and some men as the industry's products rented out of use in commercial sex acts. She goes on further and quite chillingly, simply to say, most pornography is made by slaves. I don't wish to labor that point too much, but as the Lord calls us not to exploit the poor, I think it reaches into areas of our lives that we might not immediately think of. And this prophecy through Amos has deep reaching consequences for us in how we look at God's law, in the products we buy generally, and the material we consume. So the first job that we see Amos carry out as a prophet is to point out sin. And the second job he does then as a prophet is to point to the future, and that maybe is what might more obviously come to your minds when we think of a prophet being prophetic. And Amos does this in three ways, ultimately. He, he points to the immediate future, he points to Christ, and then he points to the new creation, which is the result of Christ's work. So firstly, he points to the immediate future. In verse two, he says, then the Lord said to me, the time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn to wailing. Many, many bodies flung everywhere. Silence. So again, like that, that's pretty obviously the exile that's coming. They're, they're gonna be bodies everywhere. It's going to be horrendous. And he goes on then later in verse 9, in that day declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious feasts into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. 
Men will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In that day, the lovely young women and strong young men will faint because of thirst. They who swear by the shame of Samaria or say, as surely as your God lives, O Dan, or as surely as the God of Beersheba lives, they will fall never to rise again. I know that was quite a lot to read again, but it makes pretty grim reading, doesn't it? I don't want to dwell loads on this too much, but I, you know, I can't skip it over. Essentially, what most of those verses do is speak of the time of the exile right through to the end of the Old Testament. There's going to be death. There's talk of bodies everywhere in verse 3. And then in verse 14, those who worship other gods, gods of Dan, gods of Beersheba, they're going to die. There's going to be silence in the temple and then wailing. That all comes to pass with the exile, with the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And they're going to suffer. It'll be like losing an only son, Amos says. Remember, in that culture, in that context, an only son would have been the great hope of the family. So this picture is a time of absolutely no hope. And it will be a time when they do not hear from God's word. In verses 11 to 12, we see the people realizing that they need to hear the word, but God will withhold prophets. And again, this happens after the exile. During the exile, God does send word through people like Daniel. He's probably the most famous example, and there are other prophets too. But then for 400 years after Malachi, there is silence from God. Between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, silence. There's 400 years of silence. So Amos prophesies the, the immediate future. But then he also points to Christ, doesn't he? And you might have picked that out in a few of the verses I read. You, you probably saw it. Verse 9, In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. And we read in Luke's gospel that that is exactly what happens. It was now about the sixth hour, which is noon, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, about three o'clock in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. But the most amazing thing, I think, about Amos's prophecy is the fact that he said this happening would be like the loss of an only son. I think that's not just pointing to the people's loss. I think it's pointing to what God was going to do. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. The cost to God in sending Jesus, we can't begin to imagine it. The old hymn puts it like this. We, we may not know, we cannot tell what pain he had to bear, but we believe it was for us he hung and suffered there. All of that judgment that God had pronounced on his people, and there is an incredible amount of it in the Bible, never mind in this one chapter, that was born by Jesus in his death on the cross. How tragic it is that they placed that sign above his head. This is the king of the Jews. It's tragic because it was true. He was the king of the Jews. He, he was God's king, the one in the line of David, the Messiah, the anointed one. And yet, tragically, God's people decided to kill the Messiah. But the glory of the cross is what was achieved there. All that Amos prophesied about the people being cast out of God's presence, away from the temple, away from the word of the Lord, was remedied by what Jesus did. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. 
everything that blocked the relationship between God and people, our sin, whether it was exploiting the poor, whether it wasn't taking God's law seriously, whether it was just pure disobedient sin, it was all dealt with at the cross. What Jesus has done on the cross saves us from the horrific judgment of God on those who rebel against him. We faced hopelessness, exile from God's presence, and death, and Jesus takes all of that from his people as he dies. But he doesn't just save his people from all of that, he also saves us for something. And that is the third area where Amos prophesies. He prophesies about a glorious future in the new creation. And we read about this in Amos chapter 9. It's a, a sort of a hopeful end to the book, that wonderful restoration of God's kingdom. In that day, I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places, restore its ruins, and build it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. Do you see that great restoration? But do you notice it's not just limited to Israel at this point? It goes beyond Israel's borders out to, to Edom and in fact to all the nations. God's people will possess the whole earth. God's kingdom will be throughout the world in every nation. I think we have begun to see the reality of this prophecy being fulfilled today in the church all around the world. We're going to see that in our morning series through the book of Acts, that this isn't just for Israel, it's for all people, including Gentiles. And one day, we'll see it fully in the new creation. We also get a bit of a glimpse of what this life will be like. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. I will bring back my exiled people Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. It's a picture of so much abundance. The land produces plenty. The reaper is going to be overtaken by the plowman. There's going to be new wine dripping from the mountains, flowing from the hills. The world works for humanity rather than humans working for the earth. It's a reversal of the curse in Genesis 3. And notice that it's God who says he will do these things. I will plant. I will bring. I will do these things. It's not humanity that does anything. God brings his exiled people back. And of course, he does that in Christ. Now, we'll see more of that in our, in our final session in three weeks' time, God willing. But notice that this is very, very far away from any picture of heaven as clouds and pearly gates and floaty images that we might have. It's very earthy. There's mountains and, and hills and gardens and vineyards. Remember, God will create a new heaven and a new earth, and his people will inhabit this whole earth. So we've hopefully seen that Amos, as a prophet, he carries out the tasks God had for them. He points to the people's sin. He points to the future in terms of the immediate future, pointing to Christ and pointing to the new creation. Now, the prophets aren't always easy to read. It's not always obvious just exactly um, which of those they're talking about, and, and sometimes it's obvious, but often it isn't. 
and especially when metaphor and, and picture sort of language is used, it can be very difficult for us at times to work out exactly what it means. But I hope that through Amos this week, you've seen just what place the prophets have in the big story of the Bible. So I finish off tonight where I began. What do you most look forward to in life? There might be many answers to that question around this church tonight, but for Christians, there is nothing greater than life in the kingdom of Jesus, enjoying being with him and experiencing life in God's place as his people blessed by him. It's where all people who know Jesus are headed to, and it doesn't get much better than that. A couple of years ago now, I went to visit a man in his house. It was a man who was quite ill and he didn't have much time left on this earth. And as much as he knew his family were gonna miss him and all of that, I remember very distinctly, he looked straight at me and he said, you know, I'm really looking forward to it. I'm really looking forward to it, not dying itself, but going to the place that Jesus has prepared for me. He also joked that it was the only time he liked to use the King James Bible because in John 14 in the King James it talks of mansions and all the other versions talk about rooms and dwelling places and things that he said, I'll have a mansion. But that is the hope for everyone who follows Jesus. Whether we're at a stage of life when when that might happen soon or whether it seems very far away. It allows us to have joy even when life is hard because we know what is ahead for us no matter what life throws at us. It gives us peace even when things don't go to plan for us. It helps us not to worry about the future because we know the future is secure. It gives us gratitude to Jesus for what he has done for us and it galvanizes us. It gives us strength and determination to live for Jesus because we know we're working towards something, working to arrive at a glorious future. It puts our life in perspective when we don't get that job or when we're not as financially secure as we'd like to be because we know the future holds no fear for us. And surely it also gives us the impetus to go and tell others about Jesus because they're lost. They're destined for life apart from God unless we tell them about what Jesus has done. Let's pray together. Our God, we do again thank you for your word. We thank you that through the ages you have sent prophets to your people to give them your words. Lord, we know that some of what we read tonight was very difficult. Some of it was very graphic and and violent. And yet, Lord, we know that your judgment upon sin is just. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending him to, to bear the punishment of our sin and to bring us into your kingdom. Lord, help us more and more to to follow him, to obey him, to live for him, and to serve him. In his name, amen.